0: the weekly pseudo academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Map. and I am once again here for the 200th time with the entire cast of hosts. Monica, Hannah, Katya,
1: Wayne. How's it going, guys? 200 episodes? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I, I both feel celebratory and also like existential dread.
1: Like, what's wrong with us?
2: <laughs> like, that's a lot. I mean, I think it's really funny because, like, I like we started this years ago. I think not necessarily planning anything, just yeah, yeah. doing it. So yeah. we, we missed yeah, yeah. only one episode ever, like
3: for a yeah. week. Like it's because we had technical issues and lost the recording, and that was before COVID. So, like, we've put out an episode every week through a global pandemic. Yeah. Plus,
2: I mean, you know, at this point. Recording this podcast is how I measure the passage of time. In- <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well, And I, I'm sure we've said before, I have talked to all of you more than most other real human beings in my life in the last year and a half, two years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't absolutely. believe that other
2: people exist at this point. <laughs> uh, what, what's this really
3: Of social
4: interaction, (laughs) yeah,
3: yeah, and it's so weird. But and I mean, it's beautiful, but it's weird that like besides me and Katya and like Mav and Wayne, none of us live well lived because Katya is now across the country, the same city, and Mm. we not all five of us have been in the same room in person ever, and yet we formed a years long friendship. Now, yeah, power of
5: the internet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I've been on the internet for years, and people talk about that. Internet friends, people they, they have met through the internet and have never met in real life. And that really didn't happen to me. I personally I just didn't participate in a lot of the, the message boards and dating services and all that sort of thing. I mean, certainly MySpace and, and Facebook. But even there, I typically only friended people that I knew in real life, some of them very peripherally. Mm-hmm. They were people that I knew. That has changed due to this podcast as well. I'm now friends with a lot of people who have been guests on the show who I haven't met in real life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is kind of unique for me. I I really hadn't formed internet relationships until this. And I'm glad I I did. You're all, all delightful. (laughs) <laughs> well i mean monica
0: none of us have ever met still in person so that's yeah. uh, you know and i'm sure she's lovely um, <laughs> hi,
1: <Monica. laughs> i feel
4: I'm like shorter this, than everyone realizes we'll actually realizes. Secretly find yeah. out that
2: monica is actually a very constructed uh virtual ai
0: yeah. it could be <laughs> i mean she does a good job on the show i mean you're
1: yeah <laughs> i don't really I, care I, if you're real or not does anybody, yeah, does anybody else i, care? I, I learned I, to love data on next generation so you know
2: what is that Say. <laughs> it, it says that you're confirming our suspicions that you yes. might be a, an AI. We, yeah. But we still love you, Monica, so it's
5: yeah. okay. Absolutely. <laughs>
3: some reason, I just hear this old man's voice in my head saying, look how far you've come, which I feel like is from something. (laughs) Okay.
0: Yeah, so we should talk about that a little bit. Because first off, after 200 episodes, we decided to do origin stories. And that was Hannah's idea. And then I thought, wait a minute. Wasn't the first episode of this show called Origin Stories? And it was. So if you go back to the very first episode of of Vox Podcast, I refuse to. Well, you you probably wouldn't mind because you're not on it. (laughs) So if you go back to the very first show Wayne and I have John Dorowski on to talk about the idea of origin stories. And we talked briefly about who we are, but mostly we're talking about, you know, how superhero origin stories work because I mean, we had to start there somewhere. And um, I mean, so I listened to it today just to get like a general feel for how far we've come. And Oh my God, did I not enjoy that experience of.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't even enjoy the experience of listening to myself. Like when I edit the show, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine listening to myself from like the early days of this podcast. Like, I actually think I might be scarred if I did that.
5: <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. Katya, your first episode was episode three. Wayne and I are on one and two. Three is me and Katya. so it basically, it's always been from the very beginning. We've always had this rotating thing. So none of us have actually done all two, which is nice because breaks are nice. Um, but it is, it's weird hearing us grow and change. So I, mean, I always, like every time somebody says, oh, you know, where should I jump in on your podcast? And, I'm, and we always say, wherever. And then he's like, "Oh, I'm just gonna." I was talking to somebody, a new listener on on Twitter, not too long ago, and he's like, oh, I, "I'm, you know, I'm a completist. I have to listen to them all." And I just think, "No, oh, why would you?" not <laughs>
2: yeah. sequential. There is
0: no, no reason. Not, none of us
1: have listened to them all. Except <laughs> I've listened to every yeah. single one. Yeah, because you edit you edit them.
0: Well, I edit most of them. Katya's yeah. been editing some That's of true. them That's the last yeah. several months, yeah. but I've listened to all her. Because if she edits, it's probably because I wasn't on that one, so it's not as painful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I, I, I
1: wipe it from my memory the moment mm-hmm. we quit recording.
5: (laughs) Yeah,
3: I I do remember, though, that like my first episode, like Katya and I were in the same place because we'd come back from trivia, I think, and we sat at my kitchen table and then we recorded the episode on the male gaze. And what was funny about that is I was so nervous about (laughs) guesting because I was guesting and I had like notes on the male gaze with like direct quotes from.
2: Yeah, I think we all did that. Like, I think that's the thing that I used to like prep notes. And like, I still prep I notes,
0: just less, far less than I used to. <laughs> there, I yeah, have little no, tiny. Exactly. I real, have notes, <laughs> not paragraphs. I feel like it's like
2: very much the progression of teaching. Like I feel like the first time you're teaching, mm-hmm. you write out very detailed lesson plan. You have your lecture notes. You've like thought about it ahead of time. Whereas I feel like once you have some experience teaching, you're just like like I like I got to the point where I'm like, okay, cool. I have a 15 minute bus ride to campus. This is what I'm compiling my lecture notes. Because Because at a certain point, you're like, oh, I know what I have to talk about. Like, we have to get to this point by the end of the class. I know how to do that. You just you get better at it. I don't know that I've gotten better at podcasting, but I've gotten more comfy with it. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, forget okay. that there's an
3: audience. I think I've said this like a billion times. I forget there's an audience and I just yes. talked to all of you. It amazes well. me that people listen to us and like don't want to kick me off. It's so weird.
2: I mean, <laughs> actually, after the, after the Civilization Empire game thing, I think there were people that wanted to kick okay. both you and I off of this podcast. Okay. Probably out of the gaming community. So that was fun. Okay.
3: Actually, you know, let's talk about that episode because it's it's still my it's my favorite episode I've been on, which is a lot saying a lot because like I hate hearing myself talk. But we did an episode on Empire and games for listeners who don't remember. And Kathy and I wrote this blog that was like basically inherently, hey, games about Empire are ubiquitous. This is like a thing Let's talk about it. And this is like all the way back in 2019.
0: Episode and number 58.
3: People, yeah. And people wrote mean comments. I mean, so we had some really <laughs> thoughtful comments too. Like I so appreciate those thoughtful comments. No, it was we actually a really right.
2: thought-provoking and interesting but, episode.
3: But I think the fact, like, the fact that we made people mad was <laughs> brilliant because that means we like struck a nerve and it was something worth talking about and exploring. And it actually led to... Kathy and I doing like other stuff like at the Duke Game Lab and we have like a future episode planned as a sequel. We just are waiting for some games to come out that we want to talk about.
2: It was the first time I feel like I recognized like, oh, people listen to us and actually like think about it. I think <laughs> honestly, I think making somebody angry is the measure of you've said something like worth
5: saying on the
3: Internet. We, we got a I, comment that was basically like Edward Said is wrong. And I told my advisor this and she said, if Edward Said is wrong, I don't want to be right. And that's like gotten me through. <laughs> many a sad time
2: thinking about that memory <laughs> i mainly i remember a comment somebody was like trying to argue and i forget which exact game it was off the top of my head but there was somebody who said like that game isn't about empire and empire is in the title oh,
5: oh uh, no yeah.
2: it's civilization
3: and the tagline is build an empire that stands the test of time
5: yeah right? <laughs> and
3: it's like I I, I I just can can you read is really the thing that we do can we try real hard Okay, that, that, that is the episode I brought my most notes to. Besides maybe the Bridgerton episodes, that's the like episode I was like, no. Well-
0: I want to ask a Dissertation question. Dissertation time. Be- be- well, before we get back, because you know this was not the topic, but I, Monica, you're the newest, newest person, so, so I'm really I'm curious. You've newest. been here less than a year. How many notes do you take?
4: So it depends on the episode. I mean, obviously, an episode where I'm trying to talk everybody into it, I come in with <laughs> a bunch of notes, and people <laughs> might have noticed that my my blog posts are still those in which I'm you know, trying to teach everybody. They I try and keep them longer. It's not just like, a, today was the first day of, amongst all of us, this blog isn't out yet, in which I wrote something in which the entire blog post is just, huh, I wonder about that. And it felt so uncomfortable <laughs> that, to me. That,
5: that, 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 so that's the, the Wayne blog. Yeah, the blog.
4: For the American Girl episode, I spent... A lot of time on ebay looking at old american girl listings of which i don't know if that was necessarily like podcast research or monica is interested research (laughs) it did come up during the episode so and i will say for the box office game i did also make a very detailed spreadsheet but that's another one where it's because i want to win not because i'm nervous (laughs) about the level of judgment i will receive from my fellow co-hosts based on my preparation I feel like I you've, over-estimated, yeah. you've <laughs>
2: overestimated the amount of work that it takes to convince us to talk about something.
1: <laughs> oh, that, that I think the
2: threshold is literally like, I want to talk about something. And we're just like, okay. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> if you got something to talk about, go for it.
2: Like, if you could carry a conversation with some other people for an hour, we have an episode. <laughs> I think a, a couple of episodes have
3: literally happened because no one else was interested, but someone was like, I want to talk about this. And yeah. they, they just sent out a win to meet and published a blog. <laughs> And was like, "All right, we're doing this," and someone show up. Oh, absolutely, and, 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 we, we,
1: and we have that Nancy designated role that. of the dumb. Yeah, we have that designated role of the dumb guy, and there are times we all show up being the dumb guy, except the person who who <laughs> the guest, planned yeah. the <laughs> episode, right? <laughs> or,
2: yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like that's an actual conversation of like like we will say, like, I, "I I like I think the most recent one we have a." Episode in the pipeline on I think romance novels, romance, novels, romance yes. as a genre, and I was I like literally had a text yesterday. I was like, oh, do you need a do you need a dumb person to ask dumb questions? <laughs> <That's> the only <laughs> contribution I can make to that topic. <laughs> that's really helpful. Like I think yeah, like Wayne. I can't remember which like which episode. I kind of think it was one. I was maybe either on costuming or, or fashion that you had some really great questions. And like having somebody who has zero knowledge of a topic mm-hmm. or only knows about it in passing is a really helpful perspective. And I think it's also really nice because I think we're nerds about something. It's really hard to remember what people do and don't know. And also it's interesting to somebody who isn't a hyper nerd on something. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that that nerd thing, there was somebody recently, like I, you know, we take for granted what we know and and we kind of Mm -hmm. assume everybody else knows it. There was a Facebook group old guys who like old comics. I've mentioned this before. You know, it's basically you know a bunch of quote unquote older people. Like there's a cutoff. Like they don't talk about comics past 1986. You know, like that if you bring <laughs> up something later than that, it, it gets shot down. Yeah, but <laughs> someone commented on like just how, how they had re- read recently and uh, about some of the stuff with Siegel and Schuster, the creators of Superman, and losing all their rights. And like, did this happen to anybody else? And I wanted to respond. Everyone, fucking everyone who did comics in the forties. Like, how do you not know this? Okay, I guess you don't know this. All right. Yeah. how, how are, are you part of this group that <laughs> separates
2: the true nerds from you
1: know the casuals
3: but I, I want to <laughs> say I, I appreciate whenever we don't know things how like chinorous the expert is because so yeah. like <laughs> I, for specifically like I appreciate how Monica has indulged me in my obsession with I, I know the Dracula costumes are awful <laughs> from, from the Gary and Dracula but I'm obsessed with them
4: because they're so bad <laughs> I don't know if I brought this up before, but in our group chat, I, I did actually see the Dracula costumes in person at the Academy Museum. And one of the costumes, they just did the front half. Like, the back half is completely black. It is like, oh a, like a black sheet on the back. And I sent the 360 view to Hannah because I knew she would appreciate it. Uh, and the idea that you can just obsessed. make a costume and yet somehow win the Oscar. For best costumes that year is a lot for me to comprehend. Well have you seen
1: the back of the Oscar itself? Cause it's just flat. It's...
2: <laughs> I mean I also feel like for somebody who had an input into that decision, that wasn't that was, like that person that, that win in spite
4: of that. They won because of that. Because they were yeah. like, Yes,
2: costuming is hard. This is too much work. I enjoy solution. Yeah. the solution. best part in, in is Wonder-
4: at the Academy Museum, it's in a three sixty case and Yummy, they could that's... have chosen to put it in a case <laughs> where you can't walk around and see the back no, But I understand that because I'm the person that
2: like if you go to an exhibit of like costumes or clothing with me you like have to basically like hold me back a little bit because I'm like oh I want to go turn it inside out and see how the seams are made because I'm annoying yeah. <laughs> but I went to an exhibit with a friend of mine who was also a, a hobby a sewer of ebony, ebony fashion, fashion you know fashion that had been shown in ebony magazine and it was mm-hmm. really cool and, and almost everyone that was there was like we were probably the youngest by a lot but everyone there was like sewing people most decades older and you can tell we're all like giving each other side eye of like i want to turn it inside out i want to turn it inside (laughs) out i want to know (laughs)
0: <laughs> same, same thing. I mean, I, I want to see the I want to see the exhibit show the back, too, because I've so I've done in my former life as as a photographer, I've done some glamour shoots, some fashion shoots, and I have shot many a garment where there's no back of the garment it doesn't matter. Or held you
2: know, together by <laughs> duct tape. into
0: Oh, safety pins are magic.
1: Safety pins are, safety are the pinnacle. Well, you know, some of that is some of that is looking at the process. I know when I look at, at comics art, you know, some of the stuff I'm most fascinated by is when you see the original the stuff in blue pencil that didn't show up in the reproduction back in the day. Mm-hmm. or the stuff that has been obviously erased or you know, for a lot of artists they use the back to work out sketch ideas and you see original art at a con and you flip it over and there's sketches mm-hmm. you know stuff that never I sees the light mean. of day and I, I love that kind of stuff I do, backing up just a second that idea of our guests being generous and I think us being generous with each other as well my my thing with the Facebook group like I obviously didn't respond that way on the group and and my reaction here is for comedic effect but you know it, it's surprising <laughs> to me things that people don't know. Mm -hmm. And there's that occasional reminder of, oh, yeah, not all of us have lived under this the way I have for years. And that's important to remember.
2: Which I think Um, is the cool thing about this show is like, I I feel mm -hmm. like I get to talk to people. I mean, the cool thing about working in universities, is you get to talk to people who are like, whatever they happen to study are experts in whatever their thing is. And also, I feel like academics tend to take their hobbies very seriously when they mm-hmm. have them. So it's kind of like <laughs> an attitude that permeates your life. But I think the cool thing is like we get to that stuff stays in universities. It's like a little enclave. Where I feel like on the podcast, like we get to have conversations with those people, but we also have conversations with like people who have a similar approach to their interests that have nothing to do with universities and kind of put everybody together in a big, mm-hmm. you know, pot and then tell them to like argue.
0: I've talked about this before on our show when I was doing my exams during my age, <clears throat> comprehensive exams are part of of the PhD process where you read a shit ton of books and then people sit you in a room and they quiz you like off the top of your head for uh, an insanely long time and you know and if you don't kill yourself it's painful. And if you don't die, then you get to be a PhD candidate. That's how it works. If you don't die or kill yourself or just spontaneously combust, which happens, right. that sort of thing does happen. So right.
3: very much proved that spontaneous combustion was real. <laughs> I'm being deeply sarcastic. I'm not being serious. I want to it clear in this <laughs> Okay.
0: But anyway, during that, during my exams, there was a point where they asked me some comic question, the details of which are irrelevant. But then, and I answered it in terms of golden age versus silver age versus, versus bronze age, and and I'd done that at previous points and then finally one of my exam committee just stops me and he says I have a real question that has been bugging me this entire time and I was like what's that and he says you use the terms golden age and then silver age bronze age And I was like yeah and he says and and you don't appear to mean like you know like the bronze age of history or anything I'm like right and he goes well he says when are those terms and I said you know 1939 1945 ni- 1970 1985 and he's like okay are those written down anywhere do you know those And I was like no that's just and he says well did you make them up? And I was like, no, that's what we call them and he's like where do you learn that and I just thought and I, and I said no, well no and I just said not jokingly and I was like learn it what do you mean and he says well <laughs> if you've got these specific times he goes you know who told you when the Bronze Age was or whatever and I'm just like "I,", I, I and I'm just like and I started stuttering and I'm just <laughs> I like I was
2: born with this knowledge sir,
0: where did you well and I was like where did you learn this and I'm like someone I don't know maybe a letter column somewhere when I was seven and he's like oh so these are terms that everybody uses and I was like yeah and he goes and and, and it's just, and, and I remember finishing my exams and then immediately, like not immediately, but the next day running into Wayne and telling him about this and Wayne going, how do I know when the bronze age is? And I'm like, I, I know, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I remember saying. You you go, Stan must have said that in a soapbox at some point, but but I don't know. It's just this thing we all take for granted because it's comic book knowledge that like I've had since I was seven. And it wasn't a PhD thing.
1: It's just something I know. I read a book when I was like, 10 years old called All in Color for a Dime which was a collection of essays about comics and I read this like literally when I was 10 years old ordered it from the Scholastic Book Fair at school because it was a book about comics right and they talked about the 1940s and that may be the first place I saw the term golden age but it would have been just casual even there (laughs) but even there it was casual but maybe not because I certainly read comics before that where they were reprinting stories from the 1940s in the back of DC 100 page super spectaculars and it probably said a, a classic adventure of Superman from the golden age. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I feel probably. like we're getting
2: into the...
0: Into the
1: topic, like we're yeah, we are sort of transitioning.
2: Before we move on, I do want to ask, like, since we're still talking about sort of like origins of the podcast, like, we have two hosts now that used to be guests. Right. Yeah. I am just kind of curious about, like, what that was like to be a guest and then be, like, have a bunch of motley people be like, oh, do you want to be a host now? <laughs>
5: Yeah,
2: <laughs> which
3: actually you know i haven't heard how like mav asked you so.
1: yeah. <laughs> I, and, and I we've had a mirror. lot of guests we've had a lot of guests and they're not all co-hosts uh, some uh, a, a lot of them essentially yes absolutely
0: unofficial yeah i mean we monica and hannah are the newer co-host in that they get to play the box office game but right. you know <laughs> Steph, Josh, or- Marcel, Nicole, Andrew, yeah. <laughs> there are, Andrew, <laughs> there are some people who are here pretty regularly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I
3: mean, you only have Josh because of me.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, and same with Steph, <laughs> and, 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 you know. Same with Marcel. <laughs> Marce- yeah, sure, sure.
3: I think you distracted from the question, which was, I oh, heard yeah. Matt asked you to be on this podcast. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah sorry.
4: <laughs> I mean, we will have to answer the, the whole, what... Why me? But, but of all of the people, why did I make it through to the final round? But I had Did you not de- participate guesseded... in the death match? That's no. part of a bylaw. I, I don't. <laughs> there was no comprehensive exam. And I, I had guested twice because I had guested on Gosh Golly Wow. And then I had guested for American Girl. And then Mm -hmm. we did wearing underwear on the outside. And then Fast and Furious. And then you came back and and you were like, Do you want to do Fast and Furious? And I was like, Yeah, I do. And then you were like, But do you wanna do Fast and Furious as a co-host? You were like, but do you want to do this forever? And I was like, yeah, like I, guess I, she I do know. want to do this forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess you don't know. But we had we it, it wasn't like I just woke up one day. The four of us had a conversation about it. <laughs> yeah, We all enjoyed talking to you. And like you were you, and mes- you were you,
1: you meshed really well.
0: Yeah, you meshed really well. And you had knowledge that we didn't have, which is something we're going to talk about in a moment yeah. that fit in really well. And was and you were interesting, much like everybody else's. But, you know, but we were doing Topics that like we had you like penciled in as a possible guest for like three upcoming shows at that point. And and it was just like we all like Monica and she seems to enjoy doing it. And if we get another person, then that's you know, it's 20% less time that all the rest of us have to be here. So
4: (laughs) I mean, at the time I I was unemployed and I was like, Yes. All the time in the world.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well it's it's variety. And, And so so I mean, I was happy to have you. I mean, I'm kinda curious, and I think everybody else was. But like, yeah. since Hannah asked, what was it like for you when we did the exact same thing to you?
2: <laughs> I didn't get asked.
3: I got a message from you that said, "Well, you're a host now, so start coming up blog topics." And maybe that was like slight—that's slightly more blunt than what you said. But it was not asked. It was like you're a host maybe now. That
2: would not be out of character.
0: As I think Katya I, decided that you should be a host now because I—I asked.
2: Did her, not, I, Because when she told me, I was confused.
0: I asked you. I know what happened. We—I know what happened in, Hannah, in Hannah's case. Hannah had guested a few times in over a course of, you know, much like Monica, you you, you were on a guest host a couple of times over over a couple oh, of weeks. And then we and, were doing a show yeah. and, and neither uh, Wayne nor Katya yeah. were available to co-host with me. And we were uh, doing a show and Danny yeah. Anderson was the guest. And yeah. Hannah yeah. had commented a couple of yeah. times on the blog and she was like, yeah. and I was like you yeah. want to come on, too. So you so, came on and yeah. guest hosted yeah. with me with to, you know, the, to sort yeah. of interview Danny yeah. on this topic. And then after you were done, I actually talked to Wayne and Katya Katya and was like, should we just ask her to be on forever? And you guys were both like, sure. So then I, and Katya was, Wayne was like, sure. And Katya was like, oh no, she'd be perfect. You know, absolutely. We should definitely do this. And so, so, so that's when I said, all right, you're a co-host. And I texted Hannah and basically said that you're on now forever because Katya said (laughs) that you were. And then I guess (laughs) the thing because
2: I think what I remember is, I think we, because at the time we were both still grad students and I think what you we met up at do probably in like the grad student lounge or whatever and which sounds much fancier than it actually is it's It's where the bad coffee maker lives but which is a very Uh, important coffee maker i will say i am alarmed by that news but basically i kind of vaguely remember like you coming in and basically we're chatting about the normal stuff and she's like oh by the way i'm a podcast host now because i don't think i realized when you asked that you were going to tell her like immediately or like i i just didn't know like okay cool and that's that's happened and again not asked told (laughs) but to be
3: fair like if you want something done, you can just tell people. And that's like a move. <laughs>
4: and you I'm here it now, know. so I
2: guess it worked. I mean, w- would you have said no
4: if we had asked you? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I, do you feel like it was more or less intimidating to be asked or told? Because there is a sense in which you've been just thrust all this power in which Mav is like, you're a host now. Come up with ideas. Whereas it's I, I did decide. feel like this weird space in which I was like, I must contribute, but not too much. But when am I just freeloading and not pulling my weight? And when would must I suggest a topic? Is it too early for a topic? And there was a lot of internal politics that no one was aware of other than me during that it was, transition. Yeah, we're all just like, yeah.
2: oh, you have thoughts, great, love
4: it. No, so actually what
2: happened was really Hannah's origin story is not that we decided, it's that for some reason the universe spoke and bestowed host <laughs> authority upon Hannah. We had no say in it in any way, it was just that I was like, ah, I have create
0: i should also point um, out hannah had already written a guest what was going to be a guest blog before because you had a you had pitched an upcoming idea too so we knew you were coming on again anyway. it was just like okay you're just i think that's there. the
5: other
2: thing is like there's, there's yeah. a threshold of like i think there's like a complex algorithm that none of us are actually consciously no. aware of, <laughs> of, like the number of times you are on and then once you start pitching ideas and then following through on them <laughs> like once you write a blog post we're like ah yeah yeah hey, crap. <laughs> sorry well, um, see,
0: Marone and Natalie, who I'm sure are listening now, we do other people who are regular guests. See, they always have, like, they've both written guest, guest blogs before. They'll write a guest blog. They'll come on and co-host for an episode. And then, like, just won't return any of my texts for, like, weeks after that. So, like, that is, like, <laughs> oh, no, actually, I talk to them both relatively frequently. But they will like, oh, I've got an idea for a show. And then one of them will show up and they'll do a show. And then they're like, all right, I'll see you again in six months when I come up with something else. And that's <laughs> that's their Which power That's also mode. lovely. Like,
5: yeah, yeah
2: if we, have, like, we have, like, there's two tears. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. And I don't know the tears. They've not been defined or written down, but they exist <laughs> No, no, somehow. They be. no, this is like some kind of weird mythological council that cannot be spoken of. <laughs> well, but, you the know, show. cannot be really?
3: defined. Yeah. Yeah, though you know like I and speaking of formulas, we've gone like, I don't know, like 30 minutes or something without actually I getting no, it. Yeah.
0: Well, well it's supposed, <laughs> it was always supposed to be what it's like to go to the bar, yeah, you know, and just have a yeah, conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, t- watchers, no, totally.
3: And like we talked about our origin stories on the podcast, but when I pitched origin story, if I mm-hmm. pitched this, I don't know. I don't remember doing that. You did <laughs> text, yes. I, or maybe I was joking and it got taken seriously, which you should <laughs> never joke if you don't want to be taken seriously. I, no, I pitched no like our origin story. Yeah. I pitched our origin stories and that like, how did like we become to be the people that we are interested in, the things that we are, and yes, that that is, that is a thing that we can or cannot talk about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because mine's really embarrassing. Oh well, then you have to start. Oh god, yeah. Well, I that's why I did my <laughs> research, you guys. I have like it pulled. Okay,
0: okay. You said that before, and, and and before you get into this, you said that, and I didn't ask because I was like, I'll save this for the air. A lot of our conversations go like this too. Like somebody will say something interesting. We have a text thread that's just the five of us that goes on forever, <laughs> and sometimes somebody. will say something interesting and you'll have a thought and you're like no save that for the air so Hannah said when we were talking about this you know I'm doing research for the origin stories episode and my initial thought and I typed this and then erased it without sending was how are you doing research on something that happened to you and then I was like no wait I don't want to know this I am going to save this for the air so you did research on your own personal origin story were you not there how did this work
3: (laughs) I was there but I wanted to make sure I got it correct and by correct I mean I want to make sure I quote, every wrong thing to show everyone how messed up this is um, on multiple levels. And I guess before I get into this, I should say content warning, purity culture, if that upsets you, which it upsets me, because I lived it back away. I grew up in a like going to a conservative baptist church although like weirdly like my parents weren't members of the church i don't know like it's just my life it was like, see, they just sent
0: you and they didn't go themselves Is oh, that no, how no, they
3: they they, no they went with me they went with me <laughs> <Okay. But> like, <laughs> okay. my dad you see my dad's methodist and like in certain southern baptist churches if you're not immersed you're not technically it's a whole thing so like my family was like outsiders of the church but we kept going it's like again i don't know anyway So I I went to church. And in fact, I went to church like three times a week growing up. And the worst thing that happened to me during the time that I went to church was being made to go to purity class, a multi-week thing that just, it had its own book. And this is what I did research of. Like, I don't have the book that we used with me, but I remember the text vividly in my mind for some reason. I want to make sure I quoted it correctly. So I found it on the internet. And you're probably wondering... How on earth, like, Purity Class got me interested in, like, the 19th century novel? (laughs) Well... Well, yes, this is how. Okay, so, like, there's this book called And the Bride Wore White, Seven Secrets to Sexual Purity. And you can all grow now because, like, yeah, gross. Also, like, <laughs> like, like, seriously, like. I also, the,
2: the self-help, like, overtones of, like, seven secrets to fixing your life.
1: Choice. Number six will blow yeah. you away.
5: It's a choice that <laughs> they made, and I don't so, support
3: it. So, like, I'm going to read a passage from this book, hence the content- Morning, and it's about Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah, and also get ready for this. Okay, Sense and Sensibility is a great portrait of this kind of love story, but what is so masterful about this classic is that it is laced also with a tragic love story. Eleanor is the older sister who falls madly in love with Edward, who is handsome, wealthy, and good-hearted. Throughout her relationship, she is governed by the strictest of choices. She does not allow her heart to be seen. Unfortunately, prior to meeting her, Edward was secretly engaged to another. Being an honorable man, he knows he must not shame the young woman who no longer owns his heart. I know that this sounds ridiculous, but it wasn't in a different day and age. Stick with me. Eleanor is careful to allow him to remain honorable by not manipulating his heart, but by standing free and proud on her own. Her sister, Marianne, on the other hand, falls for Willoughby, and lets everyone know it as they race off in his carriage day after day, and as she sends him a ridiculous number of unanswered notes. In a great twist, Willoughby marries another for her wealth and leaves Marianne crying at her loss of love, not to mention her loss of integrity. Meanwhile, Eleanor takes a call from Edward, who she thinks is married, but who has been honorably freed from his commitment. He comes to ask a bended knee for her hand in marriage. A wedding carriage, fresh flower petals, and white horses escort them into the happily ever after so like if you know anything about sense and sensibility you know that like that is a totally twisted version of what actually happens in the novel so, like, first of all, conveniently, the the person writing and the red, white, like, totally leaves out that Marianne ends up married to like hot Alan
2: Rickman in the movie, and actually does have a happy ending. <laughs> like, like, as, 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 I'm sure Jane Austen intended for hot Alan Rickman. She had a premonition. Yeah. She knew.
5: <laughs> yeah.
3: Like, both sisters end up happily married. Eleanor is not flawless. Like, every plot point that this author mentioned is like slightly twisted around and made to make Marianne look like, you know, a hussy villainous and Eleanor look like a pure proprietary-like person. And it's all BS. Anyway- for whatever reason, I was like, I'm going to read Sense and Sensibility.
0: Okay, yeah, I was going to ask if you knew that. You didn't know that when you you read no. this this purity book first, correct? Yes.
3: Yeah, gotcha. and I'm going to read one more passage to see to just show you why young Hannah was like annoyed with it before she even read Sense and Sensibility. And also again, I apologize to literally everyone because any sentence this human being writes is basically inaccurate and inf- offensive. I mean, obviously, so, this is fascinating. So, like, after she like writes about sentences, the direct paragraph after is I love Psalm 45. It was written as a wedding song and was probably sung at many Jewish weddings in the days of King David. It's also a wonderful figurative example of what God sees when he looks at you and me, the bride of Christ. He looks upon you and sees a princess. You are a princess and the great benefits of being waited upon and being adorned with rich tapestry. In my mind, she is calm and contented with where she is today because she knows she is the princess and will someday be married to a marvelous prince. So like my whole life, I've been like, but what if I didn't get married? And also like, what if I didn't just sit around waiting for a dude and like had my own like independent life where I just caused trouble? I didn't exactly have like one hundred percent ambitions <laughs> beyond causing trouble. This is how
0: Hannah became a gang leader.
3: I not yeah. so much that, but. a a thing that does not relate to this, but except that it also have impurity class is I was in science class and they talked about STDs and explained why condoms were important. So at the age of 13 or 14, I lectured the woman teaching the class about why she was wrong about condoms and why it was important to use them for sexual health. And my mother was also attending with me and the woman was like, are you going to do anything about your daughter? And my mom's like, no, she's right. Anyway. Oh, mama Rogers. My mom. I think maybe just took me to this class to be entertained by my exploits. So so anyway, I, I discovered Sense and Sensibility as a thing from this book. And I was like, you know what? I don't trust this human being who's writing and the Bride War White. So I'm going to check it out from the library for myself. So I spent like two weeks reading Sense and Sensibility. And I was like, oh, so yeah, I shouldn't trust anything anyone ever says without researching it and <laughs> reading it for my own first. And then I was like, you know, this was actually a pretty good like novel. I wonder if other 19th century novels are good. So then I like read Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. And because I was like a teenager in the South, I was like, oh, this angst speaks to me. And, you know, my opinion developed over time. And then I like got into Dickens and I like started reading like Oliver Twist and David Copperfield. And I was like, this is the most hilarious thing I've ever read. And yeah, eat the rich.
2: And, like, I like say, it, like the idea... <laughs> <laughs> That was great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that the idea of your, like, childhood rebellion was getting into Dickens?
5: Yeah, I was going to say the exact is, same thing.
2: It's great. And also, like, not totally, the purity culture, not so much, but, like, there are parallels with my origin story that I'm just realizing. <laughs> I,
0: I just love that, like, you know, you know she's like, her gateway drug here is <laughs> <it's> Jane here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you're know, like, I start with Jane Eyre and then I'm doing Sense no, and no, Sensibility. Jane, Jane oh Jane Austen, yeah. No, yeah, Jane Austen. And then I'm doing Sense and Sensibility. And you know, then it, it, things got dark. I started doing some Dickens. You know how it is. I mean, a little Christmas Carol and you're doing Great <laughs> Expectations. Really and then you can't stop. You can't stop.
3: <laughs> Which, Next thing you know, know, I'm in grad school. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, yeah, I, like I took like a little detour where I was a biochemistry major for a hot second, but I missed reading books. So then I once again rebelled against what i was told (laughs) to do which was get a stem degree and was like hey mom and dad i switched my major to communication and english by so but like i i think like you know what's important from that is yeah okay this is how I got into like 19th century novels specifically but it you know it it taught me like yeah you should like read things and do research and like be exposed to new ideas and like sure some of those books like reinforce bad things from the dominant culture that I've talked about like a lot on this podcast like see all my rants about Jane Eyre but you know like I I stopped trusting the adults who were putting authority over me and I mean like you've heard my stories about like lecturing adults trying to ban books or convince people that books were bad at that church. So that was a real fun time for me. You know, like like be brave, like rebel, do things even if just,
0: chickens. Rebel, read 18th century literature. Sure.
5: <laughs> it, I mean,
3: you be 18 and like you yell at adults. It was fun. It was, like, it was yeah. a bit of a thrill yeah. to like put them in their place because yeah. I knew I was smarter than them and knew more about the subject. Which sounds a bit arrogant, but like you don't understand how low the bar was, or maybe you do. Uh, <laughs> I, I
1: think I as of hearing I
5: that was, I, I can make
2: some. Educated guesses.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I we probably all have similar stories, if not quite as specific. Yeah, yeah. I mean, similar experiences anyway.
2: I was going to say the idea of like how old? (laughs) So how old were you when the I must read Sense and Sensibility because I am compelled happened? I
3: think I (laughs) so I that time's a little blurry because of all the hurricanes. But I think about fourteen. Like 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 this is like around (laughs) Katrina, thirteen fourteen.
2: Okay, because. Like I was thinking about like what is my origin story and actually the, like one of the things that sticks out to me from around that time when I was in middle school and I think I still have it at my parents' house I keep tr- I was trying to find it is I have a copy of Brave New World that if you looked at this book and you knew that I had I wrote a book report about this book when I was 13 you would have said, like, ah, that is someone that is going to go to grad school. (laughs) Because the amount of underlining and sticky notes in this thing is appalling. Like, it's it's actually insufferable. (laughs) And honestly, I went through and I, I have marginalia in there from when I was 13. And like I remember I can't find the copy now I know the sticky notes are still in it unless my parents have you know it's disappeared but I remember looking at it a few years back and looking at some of my margin notes and it was funny because I'm like actually I wasn't wrong because like (laughs) some of the points in there I'm like actually some of these are not like they were just like why like this seems stupid why are they obsessed about zippers what's this whole fucking thing (laughs) and I'm like this is really interesting because that was around the time that I was deciding like oh I'm gonna go I want to go to I like I want to be a writer of some kind I want to study literature I want to do all that stuff and i had already kind of had a vague idea if i wanted to get a phd because i am an insufferable nerd and i was like and that book to me when i look back i'm like yeah that that should have been my parents should have been alarmed <laughs> but some of the notes i had i'm like some of these aren't wrong because there were some things that like the questions i had back then were things i ended up following up on not necessarily with that book like in like future research papers in you know my senior thesis in undergrad or in my masters program like the fact that the first book that I even did that was, you know, from early 20th century sci-fi, which ended up being the basis of my entire academic career was just like, oh, it started early because my master's program, I focused on early 20th century sci-fi and basically the relationship between literature and scientific invention. And actually, the whole zipper thing showing up in Brave New World is part of that. The reason why they were right. so obsessed with zippers is zippers had just been, like, popularized in accessible, ready-to-wear, like, fashion, essentially. Although we didn't call it ready-to-wear at the same time. But, uh, it's complicated. I'm sure Monica's cringing. So basically, they were like, ah, zippers are the sign of the future. And so like, it was seen as like, oh, like, zippers are part of the, the progression of mankind or whatever. But yeah, so it started early, which I think is fascinating. And even, like, when I think about my dissertation, I think about the way that, like, I ended up backing into being a game studies person almost on accident because I was thinking about world building, which is why I was interested in science fiction. It was basically like, how do people come to understand what is real around them? And for me, part of it was actually not totally dissimilar from what Hannah's talking about, because for me, it's like I have family, as many of us do, that have very different beliefs and very different ideas about what's going on in the world shaped by, you know, the places where we grew up, the upbringing we have, like age, all that stuff. And I think as a kid, I was always like, well, why? Like, why does my, you know, brother see the world differently than I do? Why does my cousin see the world, world differently than I do? Why does my dad see the world differently than I do? Like, why? And so I think a lot of the process of researching my dissertation and like, over time became a process of like, trying to understand why people thought differently than I did and not from a place of like, why does everyone is stupid? And why is that? Which is, this is interesting. Like two people can experience the exact same event and come away with completely different interpretations. And I don't know Mm -hmm. that either of them are inherently wrong. Exactly.
0: Ooh, Um, you've discovered semiotics. (laughs) Right. No, exactly. (laughs)
2: Like... (laughs) And the reason I started studying video games was like this idea of like now that we're at a point where technologically we create virtual worlds that are really meaningful to how we experience, you know, daily life. I mean, to to Wayne's point, bringing up earlier, of like how we can have friends on the Internet like that has expanded how we engage with the world. And to some extent, that's always been true because we've always had media. We've always had stories. We've always had virtual worlds. But I think we're figuring out now that we have different ways of constructing them. We're a little bit like we're in that stage of when a new media technology is adopted of being like, oh, this is really cool. But I'm also a little freaked out, which happens with each new medium. Like whenever we adopt a new medium, particularly a new technology, it happened with radio it happened with television. There's always this period where when it hits critical mass, we like panic as a society, like we panic and We're like, oh, I don't, how do I know what's real anymore? I'm a little worried about it because it challenges like our established ways of knowing the world. And I find that fucking fascinating. It's just, it's cool. I enjoy it. And I think the weird thing now is like somebody asked me in a a talk I gave a while ago about leaving academia and they said, They're like, oh, now that you're on this different career path, like, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't see this as a different career path. Like, I'm still really interested and still do work trying to understand how people engage with and understand the world around them. But now I get to apply it. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Like, because basically what I do now as a user researcher, I mean, it's less grandiose than like, oh, I'm going to build virtual worlds and blah, blah, blah. But I do get to contribute to designs that shape how people get stuff done. And depending on what they're getting done, that can have massive consequences for their everyday life and for the people around them. And that's a really interesting and I think also really important that we think about not just like how, you know, is a website or is a piece of software easy to use? It's also like, how does me getting the thing done that this thing lets me do impact everything else around me? Like, what's the cultural consequences of it? And I think it's really interesting because they, because people, I think, are starting to think about that in a way that they weren't five years ago. And that's so fucking cool. It's just so fucking cool. Like, why is everyone not, like, excited all the time about, like, the world is weird and you get to know stuff, which I think is why I enjoy this podcast, because, like,
5: everyone that talks
2: about this podcast is, like, knowing weird stuff is cool. <laughs> and, <laughs>
3: I mean, like thinking even like, I mean, you're making fun of me uh, a little bit for like saying, you know, like my 19th century novels was my rebellion, but like how they were used in that, like, like how sensibility was used in that book, what stories are being told in novels and like how we interpret them and how we talk about them also shapes the world and like how we see it and our values Mm -hmm. and like, right that matters like well I think it a
2: lot I think that your example is really cool too. It's because I think so often we use historical literature or historical culture to like oh like like this was traditional and therefore it's correct and it's like actually we misread history all the time doing that yeah like i remember someone was trying to explain to me that like someone drunkenly i don't think they meant to say what they said but a guy was trying to explain to me that women never went to war and and i was like (laughs) he basically said oh yeah like the early 20th century was the first time women went to war and i was like what are you talking about all was the first time all women cases. were
0: legally enlisted, and uh, I mean, yeah, okay. Right? <laughs> it, so also yeah. Like, are you? <laughs>
2: do you mean like in the United States? Do you mean ever? do you like what do you mean like, but I think it in was a, because you know in yeah. a
0: Columbus discovered America sense yeah sure yeah,
2: it seems like, <laughs> sort of what you're saying but also like no but also no yeah. but like a little bit different but also like I don't know as as, I mean, as much as I'm teasing you about He'd never the never seen the great do,
0: documentary Mulan is what he's saying <laughs>
5: <laughs> I mean like,
2: well, as, as much as I, as I will forever tease you about the Victorian uh, literature thing I also that's really cool. Yeah. As someone who also read the Sensibility at that age and probably got infinitely less out of it than you did.
3: <laughs> well, and you'll really enjoy my like eight, eight year old me's point by point comparison of the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe and Harry Potter. And while they're, why they're both in- inherently Christian and also like their relationship to Greek mythology and paganism that I gave as a speech interrupting a guest speaker at youth group. That was also very <laughs> fun and very cool of me.
2: I, I mean, was very, A, you're probably not wrong, but B, like, this is the thing. I think that there's probably a scale that you could use to determine, will my child go to grad school? And I which think of that scale is how insufferable are they on a scale of one to ten?
3: I, I never conceived <laughs> of going to grad school. Like, it was not, like, a thing I considered until I went to college and I switched my English degree and I was like, huh, what could I have a goal of that's respectable that'll get my parents off my back and let me do something <laughs> fun? That I level- love you.
2: I love you mom and dad I don't mean it in a bad way you're just concerned about your future yeah I I, and if my child went and got a PhD in literature I would at least be like okay okay
3: (laughs) but like yeah but like young me never would have even conceived that I would like would have gone to Duke or applied to Duke because like I just would never imagine that like that would be a door open to me yeah weird anyway
4: (laughs) so who's next (laughs) I, I mean one I of the things go. that go hannah's literature rebellion rebellion like really spoke to me or resonated to me was the idea of like in childhood you sort of you got to take what what you could get given the i don't know the social conditions of your upbringing in a way that i also sort of felt because i grew up in a pretty strict household my origin story I Think I've talked about how much I love Shoemaker's Batman and Robin on this podcast mm-hmm. before. It is the first time that I remember watching a movie and thinking two things. One, this is really bad. And <laughs> I like it because it's really bad. Like, the idea of camp and camp sensibility, I think was like, something struck a chord in being able to watch that movie. And so my, my parents are divorced and When we would go to my dad's house, he had like a limited number of movies. And I really should ask him like, because he didn't start out with a copy of Batman and Robin on VHS tape. And this was in the era of like having DVDs. So like the VHS tape came along later and (laughs) I don't know why and I don't know how and I should, but it, it appeared. And when you've watched all of the Lord of the Rings extended edition and the James Bond series, because that was all that was in the house and you're like, wow, here's something new. And you put on Batman and Robin really new. I I guess I would have been in middle school when I saw it for the first time that I was like, I love everything about how fucking stupid this movie is. <laughs> like, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger and all of his puns. I love Uma Thurman and her rubber lips. I love how much Batman and Robin are clearly using Uma Thurman as a reason to be able to say, like, it's not gay when it's in a three-way. Like, everything about that movie was excessive (laughs) to the point of brilliance. Like, Arnold Schwarzenegger's glitter skin is the most incredible (laughs) makeup job I have ever seen in a movie. Like, I just loved this movie. And I think, when I think about it, like, I grew up in a family that we did Renaissance reenactments. Like, the idea of getting dressed up and behaving ridiculous was something that was, like, pretty socially acceptable within our family. But it, it was also, I think I felt pretty trapped as a kid under the limitations of who I was supposed to be all the time. And so I had... A bunch of comic books, like 80s comic books, in my basement, and I had the Renaissance reenactment troupe. And I had Batman and Robin and I would sit and secretly watch episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race because I wasn't allowed to watch TV that wasn't educational. And for me, all of these things about the ability to embody Mm -hmm. another part of yourself through dress was really powerful for me as a kid who felt like like as a queer kid who felt like they weren't able to be who they are. Uh, And so I was constantly like signing up for theater because it was a chance to get dressed up, not because I liked acting. I hate acting. I was signing up. for (laughs) I was signing up to do reenactment stuff because I got to be somebody different because I didn't like who I was supposed to be. And it was one of the only outlets out there. Uh, And something about comics and superheroes and that constant battle of having to think about what your identity is and being caught between those two things was something that was so powerful for me. So I'd sort of always been thinking about dress and identity and the way that dress can be so powerful to be able to navigate those things to the point where I think I got, and I mean, I got really bullied because when you're the kid who's like, family does the Renaissance reenactment troop like you're not cool. You don't, Like your friends are not the cool kids. Like when you are the one who's like, oh, I'm going to go to like comic book and anime conventions dressed up in high school before this is something that like, before we have a bunch of Marvel movies, like you're not cool. And so there was a lot of feeling like I had to hide this interest that I had until about grad school, because I moved to New York City. And my first week of living in New York City, I walked past a man in Brooklyn wearing a see-through shirt. And I was like, you can do whatever you want here. I can be whoever I want here. And and you were in this environment that has drag clubs for the first time, and you can wear whatever you want for the first time. And the great thing about New York is that kind of nobody cares about you which is particularly freeing and and so somewhere around grad school i was like i'm going to do this thing that i've always liked Because I no longer care what people think of. And so my very last essay of grad school, I wrote a tribute to George Clooney's Bat Nipples from Batman and Robin. And I went and (laughs) saw uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art had their camp exhibition. So it was about Susan Sontag's (laughs) camp essay and all of these interpretations of camp. And I had no idea what I was going to run into when I came to the exhibition. But There was this jacket in the exhibition that I'm gonna describe as like an inflatable blow up chair, but it's a jacket and all the things that blow up are the muscles and the place where you are supposed to inflate it are like a set of male nipples. Like that's what you're supposed to blow into to, to like inflate the jacket. <laughs> There was just this moment of like, oh, all of these things connect like camp is I, I guess I hadn't realized until grad school and until all of these things and until seeing Batman and Robin and seeing all of the nipples where I was like, oh, like camp and queerness, like really go together. And that's why this has been this thing that's been so resonant for me throughout time. So thanks. Thanks, Bat Nipples. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Nineteenth no. so century poetry, I think you might be really into.
2: I also feel like <laughs> at some point when you write a book or whatever you're gonna write, somewhere in the acknowledgments needs to be thank you, thanks. Bat Nipples. Yeah.
4: Yeah. My Nobody
0: very else. First... Not your husband, not your parents. No, just like literally. I just want to thank Joel Schumacher and Bat Nipples. That's my it. My very
4: <laughs> first movie that I ever was on set for was a George Clooney movie. And that, and so like, and my husband is currently working on a documentary with George Clooney right now. And I just keep waiting for the moment where I'm like, when can I bring up the nipples and it not be weird? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll listen
3: to the podcast, okay, no. cool,
4: cool,
3: um, and you'll never have to say
4: anything, and he'll just know. I wa- no, I want us to share that moment in person, in which I tell him his nipples had a deeply profound impact on my psyche. I'm
2: just, just, just trying to imagine the facial expression that follows the sentence: "Your nipples had a deeply profound impact."
3: <laughs> um, watch Hail Caesar.
4: And the part where he joined the Marxist reading group. And I think that might be it. So, I mean, I've I've been to like, because I've been on set with George Clooney, it was for Ides of March when he was acting and directing. And I've been to Mm -hmm. a couple interviews and I've overheard a fair amount of like my husband having chats with George Clooney. And I'm like, he's going to love this. Like something about (laughs) like sense of humor, the amount of like, F-bombs that he uses colloquially, like, he's gonna think it's hysterical. He's gonna like it. We're gonna be best friends because I brought up his nipples.
2: <laughs> I feel like also specifically like the idea of my nipples contributed to somebody deciding to go to grad school is is, is, is a narrative that... I I, I,
0: I, I just, just don't want one. Monica to get me too'd by, jo- by George Clooney. So <laughs> please be careful. Oh.
5: <laughs> I mean, like, like
0: there's, there is no good way to do this, okay? Like, let's be clear. There is no good way to just walk up to you know i mean yes i get that he's a celebrity but he's also a coworker of your husband and there's no way to walk up to mm. your spouse's co-worker and be like so about your nipples That's, <laughs> there's no way to have that conversation that conversation is not okay to anyone listening to this show <laughs> okay
4: but i would like to uh, it. Mm. I'm gonna just hope say it. that me and george clooney's nipples have a special relationship that other people can't it, it, replicate. Not exactly.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that he has
4: had this conversation with a lot of other people. Yes. Okay. I feel
3: like we've gone to the under end of the spectrum from the beginning of this conversation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's some transitions. I've talked about a lot of my background on the show different times, but some of the stuff Monica's talking about gives me some different perspectives on it. I grew up incredibly rural, uh, you know, Appalachian culture. My my parents were much older. I was surrounded by people who were even older than them. Not a lot of clubs where I could dress up and go out and do things. And I've said many times that, you know, comics, very specifically, but comics and books and music were, they were my TARDIS. You know, they were my closet to Narnia. They were the things that gave color to my sepia toned world. <laughs> and you very much. Winterweed is dr- blowing by. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, it, yeah, it is. You know, all, all those old pictures of, You whatever, and 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 that's an exaggeration. I didn't grow up feeling. Depressed or deprived or whatever, you know. I had the books and whatever. I was unaware of a lot of the much bigger world, but you know, I was certainly drawn to you know, superheroes, and the costuming was part of that. And if I start listing the bands I was listening to as a teenager, they all involve, you know, it's Bowie, it's Alice Cooper, Lamarok, it's Queen, yeah. yeah, you know, it's all mm-hmm. that stuff. I pushed that envelope of clothing as much as I could in my little rural school without getting my ass beat every day, which wasn't a lot, but you know, I, it was the '70s. I, you know, my hair was longer than a lot of my contemporaries. I, I wore a choker. I, I would wear like a, a gold bracelet that a, a certain girl gave me. There was a store in the mall that was a little bit more expensive clothing store called chess king that was hip clothes and occasionally i'd be able to talk mom into buying me a really cool shirt there that you know we didn't get at sears so that was part of it but i never got to explore that in the way monica is talking about yeah i went to college down there there's a certain amount of as much as i was fascinated by that stuff there wasn't you know like there was a play when i was in high school but there wasn't a lot of room for that i i was I loved costuming, didn't have the opportunity to explore that sort of thing. And somewhere by the the early eighties, you know, I my my palette has been rather drab for years, just a lot of black without being a goth. Some of that's because it's easy to accessorize. And some of it just somewhere along the line, you know, I started looking at whether it was the the punk thing or the goth thing or the football fan thing or whatever they all felt like costumes to me and I didn't identify with any of those things strongly enough for that to be my identity so I just I never explored that fashion thing very much but still I'm fascinated by a lot of this stuff monica at some point you and i need to have a conversation about rock and roll clothing but you know the thing i, I referenced earlier you know, the nerd kid i read all in color for a dime when i'm 10 years old which was a collection of essays about golden age comics they weren't comics they were essays about golden age comics so you know should have known right then i college you know, I, I grew up in a family as the first person in my extended family to go to college it wasn't an expectation and i went to doing the things that we do now, all this pop culture stuff, they just weren't options back then. If I told somebody I wanted to major in comics, like I, they, nobody would have let me go to college. So, you know, I was a history major, as a psychology major. I graduated. I worked in the field for two or three years. And my motivation to go to grad school is, well, shit, this working thing is terrible. I much <laughs> prefer school. And, and I kind of still feel that way. <laughs> and I went back to grad school, uh, got my master's in clinical psychology, still not, you know, this path. But at the time, I was also you, making comics. I, The 1986 black and white comics explosion, my friend Fred and I had a, a contract to have a book published by a small publisher, and then the entire world of that entire world crashed before our book ever came out. The whole academic thing—I always read this stuff. I was always fascinated by this stuff, but it wasn't until early two thousands that I started thinking about this somewhat seriously. You know, because I, I am—you know—by then we have the internet, and I'm reading essays, and I'm reading you know, there are books coming out that's doing more of this sort of thing. One of the things that really got me thinking about it, our friend Tony Norman, who's been on the show, had taken a sabbatical. And had gone off and took some graduate classes. And he took a class on graphic novels. And he came back and he's talking to me about this class on graphic novels. And he's telling me about the things they talked about in the Watchmen class. And I started bringing up, oh, this and this. He's like, no, they didn't mention that. No, they didn't mention that. I'm like, who the fuck is teaching this class? How do you talk about Watchmen without talking about this stuff? Well, shit, I obviously need to teach this class. And that's kind of what started that ball rolling. Two of my friends here in town, Chambers, who's been on the show, and uh, Mark Best, who teaches at Pitt, both do pop culture stuff. Mark has taught comics in the graphic novel. I started talking to them more and more about this sort of thing and, and wanting to do presentations. I put together a small presentation for CMU just on a history of comics, it was like a two-hour slideshow on the entire history of comics, which later served as the – outline for my entire 15-week semester on the history of comics, but around that time, Tony was teaching at Chatham, teaching journalism as an adjunct, and one of the deans that really wanted to do something with comics, and she didn't have time to do it. She asked Tony because she knew he was into comics, and Tony didn't have time to do it, and he came and asked if I was interested, and my answer was yes, I am. So I went up and met this woman. A couple of years went by. She actually moved to a new job. So I, well, okay, that's done. Went up. I did a presentation at Chatham. Basically, my same history of comics thing that i did at cmu and they offered me the chance to teach an entire class of that and here i am so (laughs) i really this was not it's a career path I would have loved to have planned had it been an available career path 40 years ago. (laughs) It wasn't. So, you know, I'm not working on my doctor or any of that stuff because I in so many ways, just because of my age and and history, I feel that boat has sailed. We've joked on here about me being the freelance academic and, but I kind of like that, but yeah, kind of fell into this whole world a little backwards, but I I love it. I love keeping my hand in it. I, I like to do more teaching. You know, I've had the opportunity at Pitt, but also to the Tunisian that was here in Pittsburgh, I've done you know, countless presentations for them. And I've done workshops and presentations at four or five other universities around the mm-hmm. area as well, all of which have died in the last two years because of the ongoing crisis. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Something happened, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: But, I mean, for a while, I feel like this has gone away a little bit because of the ongoing crisis. But for a while, I was one of the two or three go-to guys in the city. Like, someone was doing something on comics, <laughs> my name came up. And that was a good thing. That's who I want to be here. But uh, those opportunities just. Haven't been presenting themselves very much of late for obvious reasons. But yeah, it yeah, kind of sucks. So I don't know. Like my 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 story's not as amusing as some of the others. But that that's stuff Monica was talking about with the costume and just how much that has always appealed to me and how little of it I have actually explored or had the opportunity to do. A little bit of cosplay at, at some conventions, not a lot. Halloween has always been a lot of fun because that's the one day you can do that and get away with it. I kinda- <laughs> I mean, I mean,
4: Push back when you say that you haven't done it because yeah. you have. Yeah. Lewin has that, like, all dressing is performative in nature. Right, yes. And so the idea yeah. of you saying I tried out all of these things mm. and none of them seem to fit like who I am, there is a mm. sense in which like, it's not supposed to, it's supposed to be fluid, and you are supposed to try all of them on until you mm. realize that like, the thing that you are is you. It, Like, yeah. no one ever fits into one of those things. That's sort of the point of like, the construction of identity yeah. and the construction of trying on all of those different like yeah and you're right like so you have done it yeah
1: I know. and I, I didn't I mean I when I was saying that stuff I never you know the people around me I never did the goth thing I never really did the punk thing yeah I just I'm wearing my jeans and t-shirts or whatever I, I and I do hear what you're saying I certainly have over the years found you know my sense of style not so much on a day-to-day just working at the store or going to work thing but you know when I dress up there's very definitely things I lean toward that are more me that's off the beaten path things that other people around me don't wear so yes over the years I have found that style I, I just feel like I didn't experiment nearly as much back then as I could have. I mean, I, intentionally. Right. Yeah.
2: Get that. Cause like, that's kind of the reason I got into sewing. I remember being in, been I would have been seventh grade, eighth grade. And I was one of those kids that like, I, I was in the Abercrombie and Fitch Hollister era of millennials. I was born in 1990. And it, that just, and that's what everyone in my high school wore. Cause I was in a predominantly white suburb and just literally everyone dressed the same. And I'm like, I don't want to dress that way because it just doesn't, like you were saying, like it doesn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. And my weird ass wanted to wear blazers and waistcoat because that's normal. But of well, course, that's not a thing you could get, especially I mean, now this is actually one of the reasons I love TikTok. I see like so many like young, younger people younger than myself, like 20s, even like late teens, like dressing weird as hell. Yes. Because it's available yeah. now. Yeah. And and I think especially the aspect of like you can perform that for the internet in a mm-hmm. way that they like because I, I would be surprised if most of those, especially the younger kids, dress like that all of the time, especially depending on where they live. But I, you can perform it. that online for people who are like minded in a way that you can't. But that was also I wonder where right, Because I I remember I wanted to wear like very masculine stuff in terms of like I I made and I made I wish I still had it. But I made a like tailored men's waistcoat that fit me because I also like hit puberty really fast. And so wearing men's clothes in a way that was actually like fit me was not possible. Mm. But I also wanted to make like corseted cocktail dresses from the (laughs) 50s. Which I, which as people who like know me in real life know that I do, like I throw cocktail parties at my house less now because COVID obviously, but Mm -hmm. I used to throw cocktail parties and and dress up and make, you know, and, and, and make, you know, replica dresses from the twenties and all kinds of stuff. And like, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but like, for me, it's like, I I had to learn how to sew to let myself do that Mm -hmm. because the things that I wanted to dress as like There was some aspects of like it wasn't socially acceptable and I was going to get picked on for it. But some of it was also just like it just I couldn't access it or at least I didn't know how to access it, even if it was available. But I remember like the first time in college and it was actually that same vest, which was the first thing I sewed by myself. I think when I was probably 13, I remember wearing that in Chicago when I was probably a freshman or sophomore in college, and I got photographed for a style magazine, and it was the first time of like, oh, I can like be weird. Mm-hmm. I'm not even necessarily that weird, but like I can do the Katya thing, and. It's fine. Like, it's all fine. And
1: and, and in retrospect, just through this conversation, I've done more of this than I think I'm really consciously aware of. Just some of the choices. I have an anecdote from when I was in grad school. I I was in grad school. I was living with uh, a bunch of other guys. They were all undergrad. Like, I was all of two or three years older than them. There was a a day we were walking down the street, you know, Snowy, Edinburgh, we're walking down, four of us walking down the street, and there's myself, and I'm wearing a long trench coat and a really long knit scarf and a, a fedora. I was not a Doctor Who fan at the time, surprisingly, Mm -hmm. given that description. My friend Fred was just, he just, he had long hair and a beard, but he's wearing just sort of a a puffy down jacket. My roommate Steve, this is the, the mid 80s. So he had sort of the whole punk gear. He had the devil's lock hair with you know, swept up on the sides with way too much hairspray, uh, leather jacket with a misfit skull—you know that sort of thing. My roommate John is wearing just all military gear, just uh, camouflage and you know, like World War One army spats over his Doc Martins. And you know, we just left the house that way because that's who we were, and we're walking down the street, and a couple of very obvious frat boy jock types—and I'm saying that based on their clothing—walk past us. They're about ten feet from behind us, and we hear one of them say, "Wow, what a fucking freak show that was." <laughs> Wow. Okay.
2: (laughs) See, I I was lucky enough. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Portland, so it was a little bit different. But I was also lucky enough to live near Portland, which it's interesting to move back now because when I was growing up, Portland was much weirder than I feel like it is now. There's still pockets of it. But, like, I remember I, like, the first, like, piece of clothing I bought with my own money that wasn't cheap was a handmade top hat,
5: Mm -hmm. which is,
2: like, (laughs) with weird shit that I wore as a kid. <laughs> I was like seventeen and I was like, I don't I'm hot top hat, this seems fun. I don't know. And it was also probably the sign of like, Oh, I will grow up to be a union person. Because I think the reason I wanted to buy it (laughs) is because it had the name of the person who made it in the brim of the hat. And I thought that was the coolest fucking thing I'd ever seen. Because I'd never seen, I'd never, I think that was the first time I saw something that you could wear that was like that. And to me, I was like, oh, that's like art. Like people sign art. And I thought that was the coolest fucking thing. So like all the money I had saved from my job at the time was just like, I'm going to buy this thing because I want Mm -hmm. it. I just remember going to like lunch with my mom and I was wearing this fucking thing and the waitress looks at me and like I had the opposite experience and I'm like very glad that I did because and I think it's because of the city I, I, grew, I grew up near and she just looks at me and she says like that's such a cool hat and she's like you must be so brave to wear that
5: yeah. and it, it literally
2: never occurred to me because I thought I was just wearing yeah. a <laughs> stupid hat and I was like oh I like this was and it was like I don't know between that and like when I again when I was in Chicago it's like both of those i think for the people who said those things were probably very minor experiences but like looking back they were k- like kind of huge of like yeah. i felt like i was being not necessarily that i needed permission but somebody was like oh yeah you have permission from yourself and it's cool yeah. and also like i very much i love it I... when people dress weird because yeah. even if it's a style i don't care for because to me it just like it makes me happy to see people dressed up not even mm-hmm. dressed up but like dressed distinctively mm-hmm. Because it's like, it's to me, that's the reason I like graffiti. It's like, or public art of any kind, really. It's just, oh, I'm doing my daily life and you, for whatever reason, are wearing whatever it is that makes you happy. And also like, I get to see I- something interesting today because you did that and so it always makes me so happy and like it's, it's like these moments where I recognize like oh I did that for somebody else like it's so like yeah. so cool
1: I've had a, a number of frock coats in the last 20 years I've adopted that for weddings funerals and gunfights you know whichever comes up it's appropriate and that's become a, a look that I don't see anybody else doing and I thought okay this is me as an adult or whatever and Mike, last I don't have to a fit. frock coat come well, on yeah <laughs> I'm sure if anybody I know does have one yes. it is you it, how but dare it, you! It, it's <laughs> kind of become one of my things. But that, I, you know, I found this picture of myself as a teen, and you know, back once again in the country. Everybody's wearing you know, just denim jackets, but they're the the short cut denim jacket. I'm standing there in this picture, and it's a denim jacket, but it's a frock coat cut. Like, <laughs> I was wearing that shit back then. <laughs> oh my god! And completely forgot that
2: the idea yeah. of a denim frock coat Yo, and, 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 and it had the
1: big it had the big giant pockets in the front this is so 70s oh, and like I and love it, though. when i saw this picture it's like oh my god i was doing this then
4: yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so meanwhile, meanwhile, one of my favorite like pieces of fashion history is at one point in time Abercrombie and Fitch paid Žižek to write a back to school catalog that's, Sorry, what? like like Žižek like, the same Žižek philosopher yes the same Žižek <laughs> because there's. only one (laughs) (laughs) thank goodness for that a back-to-school catalog for abercrombie and fitch in which he talks a lot about sex because it's zizek and because it's abercrombie Mm. and fitch but those things like exist together and this is supposed to be the height of like fashion and culture in the moment that is that it's produced like this is the early 2000s when abercrombie and fitch is sending home those like very thick Forny catalogs that are a lot more naked threesomes than clothes. Like, Yeah, my uh, my mom called them <laughs> Abercrombie and Filth when I
2: was a child. Oh, <laughs> yeah, she wasn't yeah. even super puritanical. She was just like, what the hell is this? Yeah, my mom would
3: not let me shop there. Also, the entire time that we've had this conversation about fashion, I've just been thinking about my mother agreeing to go into Hollister that one time. And if you've ever been to
4: Hollister, you might remember that it is like just pure dark. So I worked at mother. That's why I'm bringing this up, is, like, that I was this kid who, like, when we talk about things that come full circle, like, I always kind of enjoyed the ridiculousness and humor and, that was Abercrombie and Fitch. Like, for me, that was always, like, it was the thing that the popular kids were wearing, but it was also the thing that's a complete fucking joke, because Zizek wrote a sex catalog. Like, what? <laughs> like, and, and then you're going in the shop in this store that, like... You can't see anything in. And the whole point is to shop for things, to look for things. And it looks like a giant beach house in the middle of the mall. (laughs) Like everything about that is inherently absolutely ridiculous. And so even in this place, it feels like it's coming from like conformity is still this connective through line to like camp and artificiality and like, extravagance and spectacle that sort of I've
3: always adhered to. So would you agree with my mother that they kept the lights off because the clothes weren't worth buying? That was her <laughs> line.
2: <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I think we to need to things devote by an color. episode. <laughs> I, I think I think we need to an episode to this thing because Mav just dropped it into our chat. I'm just looking at some of the text, and I'm assuming this is something from the editor. I have no idea. But it says, Enclosed, please find images from our back to school issue. We've never had a philosopher write the text for our images before, so write what you like. This is the part that I really enjoy. We're looking for that, quote, Karl Marx meets Groucho Marx, unquote, thing you do so
4: well! Exclamation point. Thanks. Oh, the entire catalog is a, a tiny cultural masterpiece. I may or may not have mentioned that I am actually an Abercrombie & Fitch historian. So
1: <laughs> we need an episode one of the on things that I know it. a
4: lot about is the history of Abercrombie & Fitch as like a fashion company. However, I will say that this book is both the height and pinnacle of Abercrombie and Fitch as & Fitch. Like I'm could, trying to process you top the idea of Zizek writing your catalog. No, no, you can't. <laughs> no, I also want to know how I
2: didn't know this until just now. Thank you for sharing this horrifying knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like we do on the note of Zizek scarring my mind a little bit more than it was 10 minutes ago. I, I like, I'm kind of wondering. Of, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have an origin story or did you just come fully formed to this podcast?
0: Oh, uh, uh, no, God, no. Um, am, am I fully formed?
5: <laughs> I, I don't know.
2: I'm not, I'm, I'm not really
0: convinced that I'm a human being. So that, that seems very ambitious. I got to. I mean, for me, it was a little something of everything. I mean, like, what's my origin story? My origin story story of being you know geeky nerd person yeah okay maybe I'm fully formed I I ain't born fully formed I don't when you said this before about like always reading I know that I could read by the time I know I could read well I was completely literate by the time I was two years old my mom when I started babbling, my mom started ta- teaching me to read because, as a first-time single mother, she didn't know that wasn't supposed to work, and so she taught me to read. And then she started. And then, when my mom started went back to work, when I was about two years old, when I was a year and a half, two years old. My grandmother, who was a homemaker, would would babysit me during the day. My grandfather got home from work before my mom did, so my job from about the time that I was two years old was when my grandfather came home. It was my job to get the newspaper and read him the newspaper so he could just sit in his chair and read the newspaper to him. And my grandmother walked in the room and saw me with the newspaper and she yelled at me, Christopher, that's for growing up. You, you can't, you know, take and took it away from me. And I was like, but I'm reading to grandpa. And she's like, well, and my grandfather's like, yeah, maybe we'll give him the paper back. He's reading to me. And my grandmother's like, ha, ah, very funny. And So, so my grandmother, and she's like, he's, and I'm like, I'm reading the paper to grandpa. And so she's like, all right, what's this say? And I look at him and I go, Fuh. and she goes, all right, very good. Good. and and I said, "What about this word?" And, she, and I say, "Journal." He's like, "Okay, he knows the name of the newspaper. Very good, Christopher." Now go play. And my grandfather snatches the paper away from my grandmother and gives it back to me. And she reads it to me, and and he hands it to me, and and he says, "Christopher, read that." So I start reading about Watergate,
5: which you
0: know, like <laughs> because that's what the story was about, or whatever, right? And I and my grandmother is like astounded, and it's like, "How, how does he know what that says?" And my grandfather's like, "Because he reading it," you know. It was, <laughs> it was, and it was like and and she, my grandma, how can he possibly be reading the newspaper you know it was about carter debating ford or something and and talking about watergate i don't remember what the story was it was you know 40 something years ago but but so my grandfather's like yeah he reads that's what we do now leave us alone so that i can hear the story and so i read so then my mom when my mom gets home my grandmother's astounded and she's like you have to see the baby can read and my mom's like yeah i know and she's like but i but he can really read and my, my grandfather and my mom are like yeah all two-year-olds can read and my grandmother's like what the hell's wrong with you people no they can't so that's how i found out i was weird and like smart i guess but after that once they're like, oh, you need child appropriate books. Well, there are no child appropriate books for kids who have full adult vocabularies, but the emotional maturity of a two year old. So, so that became complicated for like, so, so like I was reading, like, once they realized I could read, I would be, I would read stuff like, like w- one of my favorite books when, when I was very little, when I was like two or three, was The Monster at the End of This Book. Sorry, Lovable Furry Old Gro- Grover. But it's a, you know, it's a picture book about Grover from Sesame Street that was, Educationally, eighteen years too young for me, you know. But I was two, and I couldn't read anything interesting. So, uh, so until I was when I was like five or six or seven, I started reading the Oz books, which I've said on this show before. And then I, I read Narnia. I read one of my favorite books as a really little kid was Watership Down, which I don't know if you've read Watership Down before, but it, there's a lot of things that are really kind of terrifying. And I read it when I was six because what
3: sex is funnies, yeah,
0: yeah. And it's and I really liked stuff like that. But I didn't know that was just my life growing up. Was reading stuff like that, and eventually getting into comics. When it, at seven, I discover six or seven, I discovered comics because I started flying to see my dad. My parents were split up, as I said, so I started flying to see my dad. So they would just whichever direction I was going from Cleveland to Houston between the parents, they would just shove me on a plane with a bunch of comics to give me something to do for the flight, and that's so that's like how I started, you know, becoming a voracious reader. And when I get to high school and I'm Or in junior high, and I'm being forced to like, you know, study books that I find boring because they're canonized books about people that I find either terribly uninteresting or I'd already read them all. So, you know, like, like I actually kind of liked Kill a Mockingbird, which we read in ninth grade, except for I'd read it in like sixth grade. And I liked e- Eli Weissel's Night. I loved that book, but I'd read it in the fourth grade. Like I'd just gotten through all the stuff that they were doing. So I started, you know, insisting on doing what were supposed to be academic papers on, you know, shit like I'd I'd just write about Batman or I'd write about Dr. Seuss uh, for a poet he's like we need to do your favorite poet and I'd be like all right fine I'm doing Dr. Seuss I'm like you can't do Dr. Seuss I was like why not he's I'm like he's a poet he's not a poet I'm like yes he is so then I'd write like a I'd write an essay on the importance of just on on I didn't know the word deconstructing yet because I hadn't been to you know actual college and no one was like really supporting me so I'd write the importance of depictions of war in the butter battle book which is by Dr. Seuss it's a book I wrote there's a report I wrote in 10th grade that they were forced to give me an A on even though like this is garbage but it's better than everybody else's and I was, and I was just amusing myself and I was a smart ass because school was boring so I did that through high school and then I went to college to study art and computer science because again all the way through 12th grade no one had told me that you know like I didn't want to be an English teacher English teachers are boring like you know I'm going to teach grammar I, I find that thoroughly uninteresting I like writing but that's not a job writing something people do on the side. So I was going to do computers and I was going to do art because those are real jobs or at least someone had told me that. And I didn't know that like studying literature was a job basically until my sophomore year of college. And I didn't know that studying culture was even a thing that existed until I basically just to fulfill some requirements, because I was I, I was double majoring originally in art and computer science. And then I decided I didn't like majoring in art because being an art major doesn't mean learning how to draw it learn means learning how to be an artist and I didn't really want to be a fine artist, I, I discovered. So I switched to majoring in computer science and writing, creative writing at first. And then uh, creative writing required me to take a intro to LCS, Literary and Cultural Studies, and some literature or culture class. So I just took one at random. I took, I, I took a, a class called History of Rock and Roll. And I'm like, that sounds interesting. I like rock and roll. And I learned about rock and roll and culture. And it's like, oh, well, this is interesting. There's not really, this isn't really studying English, but it was. And then... So, I took a follow up class by the same person, David Shumway. I took a class called Youth Culture. And then I took a ca- class called Disney and Culture and then Science Fiction and Culture. And then I learned what cultural studies was, like basically in college on accident and realized, oh, this is like a thing that you can do and it's interesting and you can like discover things. And I learned, you know, that sociology was a thing. And I learned that like you could do interdisciplinary work and like mix psychology and philosophy with the study of literature. And in literature, didn't have to be books. I mean, I loved reading, but like reading as a career in and of itself seems silly to me. I wanted to be able to, it it needed to mean something for it to be interesting. So that's when I basically just decided, all right, just because this is a thing, I'm going to also major in this in college. And so I got a major in literary and cultural studies. And then I graduated and I wanted to go off and make money. So I started designing computer software because remember, I was like, I was also there for computers. And that's the real job, you know, English and stuff. That was just Fun. So I started designing software for for a living. And I did that for like 15 years. And I started just out of boredom. I missed school. Like Wayne, you said you wanted to, you know, Mm -hmm. like that was what you do. I missed school like a lot. And then Marone Langsner, fit friend of the show, he's been on the show several times. He was like, Well, you should do this conference with me. What's a conference? Okay. So he's like, You can go write a paper for PCA. I'm like, I don't know what that is. And he's like, It's Pop Culture Association. And so I learned about that and so what can I do? And basically I learned what it was. And then I need to do something interesting. And so I started writing papers just for fun <laughs> about things that I was interested in. And I would start doing things like like if I wanted to learn about professional wrestling, I go, why don't I just go out and become a professional wrestler? I mean, it's more school. How hard could that be? I'll just go get beat up for a bunch and I will learn to be and I will, you know, I'll enroll in professional wrestling school for a year and learn how to be a wrestler and learn what's interesting about that and read everything there is to know about the culture of pro wrestling and just become an expert on it because that's the kind of research that one does for like if, if you're a software designer like like Katia is now but like but the research I was having to do would be on was on, for that was like financials and banking and I didn't find any of that interesting but if you tell me that I can research this cultural thing I was like, this is fun so I did that for you know a few years and I learned the term I learned the term ob- participant observation as ethnography as that's what I was doing with wrestling and then I learned you could do pro wrestling studies in culture and how media plays into that and then you can look at at people like Baudrillard and you can do all kinds of deconstructionism and then I learned about you know you could do the same thing with comic books and then I got involved with the comic studies group and then it's like or you could just go back to grad school and I kept saying I was going to do that because just because I wanted to learn more but I didn't. Until I got had a bad job that I really disliked. I
1: I, I remember a lot of these conversations yeah. in the store <laughs> yeah, over the course was, of years. Yeah, there. I got. I I started
0: taking. I got. I had this full time job and I hated this job so much. I won't say what it was, but there were. I would. I would come home from work and talk for fifteen minutes, then half an hour, then an hour, then two hours every day about just like wanting to murder people I worked with, <laughs> and I was like really bitter and repressed. and I didn't realize it until my at the time girlfriend now my wife would tell me okay you're really unhappy and I'm like am I and she's like yeah and she's like well and she's like you're clearly very depressed and I was like I I, I don't I mean I'm kind of sad and she's like and she's like plotting murder for two hours is not normal and I was like it's not <laughs> you know. so I just like after having done that for a couple of years and even after I finished that job as a contractor as a design contractor I was moving from one firm to another from one company to another always ch- chasing these jobs and not enjoying myself at all anymore. And she's like, well, what do you enjoy? And I was like, well, I enjoy doing this cultural studies research. And she's like, well, go to school and do that. And and you'll be much happier. So I said, but can I really, you know, can we afford for me to do this? And once she, when Steph and I started dating, she was a grad student. She was very poor. By this time, she had finished her PhD. And so she wasn't making as much money as I was. We're engaged, but she was making enough money to, you know, that we could get by, particularly given that I saved up i was making a lot of money this dinner so i'd saved up a bunch of money so she's like you can probably go to grad school for a little bit and see if you like it and so i was like all right maybe i'll think about it and then i there was like a weekend where i found out that I was losing my job. They basically, they gave me two weeks notice because they were losing the funding on a project. So there's like, you have two more weeks and then you're done. And she's like, well, maybe now's your chance. You should go to grad school. And I thought, well, all right, let me see if I can do this. And I went and there weren't a lot of grad schools to apply to because I wasn't going to move to go to grad school. So I was like, well, let me see if I can apply to Pitt or CMU, which are in the area that I live. Um, And I'd gone to CMU before and Pitt's applications process was closed and CMU's was due on Monday and it was Thursday and Steph's like all right well maybe you should go make sure you can you do it next time and just if you can't if you so because you'll be much happier and I was like no I can do this and she's like you can't apply to grad school in three days I'm like why can't I and she goes well you'll need letters and I was like okay is that hard she's like well have you stayed in touch with your professors and I was like some of them (laughs) so like I like basically I was like let me write people and see if I can do this and she's like all right and she's like and is your are your GREs even good still and I was like oh I never took the GREs she's like you have to take the GREs and I was like. Okay! Well, it turned out that I found somebody offering the GREs like on Saturday. And she's like, it's Thursday. You cannot pro- study for the GREs in two days. I was like, of course I can. The way to get me to do something is just tell me it's impossible <laughs> and, and make me make it a challenge. And I was like, yeah, I will apply to grad school in, in three days and I'm going to get in. And that's what I did. <laughs> and, that, and then that's basically how I ended up at, at CMU six months later. And I met Katya was just like, like on a lark of I'm, I'm just really and happy at work. Can I go to school for this? And then it's like, well, now that I'm here, CMU's grad master's program is only a year long. So once you're there, you're immediately going to work on a PhD program. You're immediately working on that. So I got into this master's program and then immediately started working on this Ph.D. program, you know, and even doing that, there was, you know, there were people, at, at, there were people, professors of mine who said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do inter- interdisciplinary studies and look at popular culture. And he's like, well, yeah, but what field? And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, are you going to be a modernist, 20th, 20th century person, 19th century person? And I was like, that all sounds really not me. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to study interdisciplinary cultural studies. You know, just look at, you know, I want to look at interesting bits of pop culture. And he says, well, that's not a field. You can't do that. And I was like, again, don't tell me I can't do stuff because now I have to do this in order to prove you wrong. (laughs) So, so that's how we got to to where I am. It was just a lot of me going. I don't know. I want to study this for a living, and I'm unhappy doing real people jobs. So, is interdisciplinary cultural studies like a job? And it wasn't. But now, you know, it's eight years later, and it is. So, that, so like that. So that's how I got here. I, it was just like sort of. I, I don't know how to. I don't know how to take no for an answer.
3: Like maybe. Something we all have in common is
2: sheer stubbornness of will.
0: Yeah.
5: yeah. Oh,
2: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you have, I mean, to do, not necessarily like to be an academic in like traditional sense, but I think like one of the things that I think people who do stuff like this, whether it's, you know, professionally, freelance, whatever, or just, you know, for funsies, it's like you, oh, I don't know how to say this without sounding like an asshole, but like having an opinion and holding it, like deeply is a skill.
0: Having the correct opinion and holding it deeply is even harder. Right.
2: <laughs> I think, like, when I look back at like, you know, when I was saying like my brave new world like thing is like, well, I think it's that and it's like a deeply held opinion that's backed up by curiosity because like when I look back at like, you know, the the, the margins, like the, the notes I used to leave in the margins. First of all, what fucking 12, normal 12 year old leaves notes in the margins of
0: novels? I want to know. because like I, I mean, frankly, how dare you ruin a book like that? I'm kind yeah. of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. like, when right. you were telling the book, that story, it was just like, you know,
2: no, I, that. I think that was <laughs> the first book I ever wrote in because I was I think I was that person. But I was like, I have ideas and I want to think about them. That's and- what sticky notes are for. Well, that's why sticky notes. But at a certain point, the sticky notes weren't cutting it. It was...
1: Uh, You kids who were born after the invention of sticky notes, I swear.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I, I think, like, it, it didn't occur to me until many years later that people didn't read that way. And I think, like, even just listening to all these stories, like, I think all of us, not just reading, but, like, responded to culture that way. Like, I remember distinctly a really weird experience. I really wish I remember what exactly I had said. But I basically, like... It was at a time where like, I think Britney Spears, I don't know if it was her first album or second album had come out and it was on the radio. And I remember like turning to my mom and basically saying like, well, those lyrics are classist. I didn't use (laughs) the word classist because I didn't know what that meant. But that was what I was trying to convey. And my mom looks at me like I'm insane. And she's like, it's just music. And I was like, no, she's saying something and it's important. And I don't agree with it. And my mom is just looking at me like, it's just a pop song.
0: There's no such thing. (laughs) Right? I was
2: a kid and I was (laughs) sitting there in my mind. I'm like... But it's not, like, is it just a pop song? Like, I'm listening to it. I'm hearing lyrics. Like, i basically, I'm like, I got an idea from it that somebody put an idea into a song and it got to me. And I'm like, so what does that mean? It's just a pop song. Like, I've I mean, thought about something because of it. And I think it was just like, does not everyone listen to music or read books or whatever <laughs> like this? Or did we all just not
4: talk about it? Does anyone else go remember back. the Josie and the Pussycats movie? Which there's a yeah, yeah. little yes. messaging about what you should purchase or like written into the music. And I think maybe as a kid, like I took that one a little too literally and I was like, oh, Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why we're here.
3: But like, do you, do you like go back to like the, my, my original, like story like i you know grew up in that church and like i was exposed to a you know a very specific culture and like this was like when like christian groups had discovered that they could make a whole lot of like money producing like christian themed like kids books and romance novels and like radio shows and like you know tv specials and like at one point in my life we literally had like a satellite that only broadcasted like christian channels and, like, why that's important is they recognized, like, the people who created that content recognized how important it was, like, how media can shape your thoughts. Like,
4: I mean, I don't know and, how and many like- people know this, but Scientology has an entire production studio in LA. Like, yeah, they have yeah, an entire yeah. separate, like, Scientology network of yeah. <laughs> narrative programming for Scientologists. Like, I have friends who have, like, struggled to be actors in LA, and then it's like, surprise that casting call is actually for the scientology network (laughs) and every single one of them has that existential crisis of not willing to sell out yet like but it's a big fucking studio yeah (laughs) like
3: yeah also i
4: Mav. this is
3: a random aside but i think my true origin story was when i was like two three years old and i kept like getting out of bed at night because i wanted to like watch the tv my parents were and my mm-hmm. dad kept sending me back to bed and he finally got irritated said hanley rogers if i see your feet on the floor again tonight you will be punished so out of sheer spite i put my hands on the floor and did like a handstand from my bed with The door open, <laughs> waiting for my parents to walk by so they could see i was following the rules but i was being spiteful and oh. what happened next clearly i think solidified our relationship for the rest of our lives they found me and like my father laughed about and was like well she knows how to
2: interpret things. Cool. Good job, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this um, right. comic I have saved somewhere that like talks about the idea that like, depending on like your perspective, you see different things looking at a landscape, which, you know, is a theme of my the things I'm curious about. But it talks about like, if you're a geologist, you see cool rocks. If you're a physicist, you see cool. You see, you, if you're a physicist, you see like the movement, like the way the, move, the wind moves things. You, like, or if you're an artist, you see color. If you're a literary person, you like think of poetry and all this other stuff. And I think like (laughs) just listening to a lot of these conversations, it's like we maybe like, and and that specific comic is talking about like how the way that like your academic training shapes how you see the world. And I think like just listening to this conversation, like like, actually it happens a lot earlier. Like we pursue the interests that we do because there's something that happens much earlier about like why we are interested in that thing. And I think that was Mm -hmm. like, you know, even after leaving academia, I think one of the most fun and rewarding things about going to grad school is everybody is like deeply invested in whatever weird thing it is Mm. that they're invested in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so cool. And I think it's something that like I'm always grateful for the opportunity, like even though it was so fucking difficult, Hannah knows very personally how hard it was and watched like so many nervous breakdowns but i'm always grateful i got to do that because like i will forever be able to say i got to spend a chunk of my life thinking about stuff that most people never have the time or opportunity to think about and like indulge in that (laughs) but like and indulge in that and which is not to say it's not difficult and like i was reading actually twitter threads about People who like there's a there's an entire conversation around like the recovery period after a PhD program or a postdoc. And then it takes years <laughs> for you to like actually bounce back as a human. And that's very real. But at the same time, it's like and there, there's things that you give up to be able to do that. But I still like I got to read for a mm-hmm. year for my exam year. Yes, the exam at the end is horrendous and very stressful, but I got to read for an entire year. And that was basically my job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You got paid for it. Yeah, that's kind of neat.
2: <laughs> you, get yeah, paid I, hard, I, but you got paid for paid.
1: Well, I, I, I love the continuity of things. You know, Hannah's story about, you know, her exposure, pride and prejudice, you know, through that continuity of stuff from our childhoods that we're still doing. You know, like I, I was reading stories about Hawkeye when I was 12 and I was talking about it on a podcast last week. Mm-hmm. I I discovered David Bowie with the song Rebel when I was 12 years old. And I'm reading a book of essays about his last three projects, you know, academic essays, those things that move me then are still things that move me now in different ways but boy there's a thread through my life of a lot of the same stuff mm-hmm.
2: I can trace like so many things in my adult life to the fact that the first video game I ever beat was Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time and I'm not <laughs> kidding about that mm-hmm. that is a much I need like have drunk much more alcohol to have that conversation but like literally there <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why when I was thinking about like why the hell did I write the dissertation that I wrote but when I think back there were very I read a lot as a kid but when I think back to it, I think the media experiences that were the most impactful about the way that I saw the world it was video games every single time like because there's this idea in a video game where like you get to fix a problem and I think like that and especially I think about like the gaming generation the idea that you are supposed to like save the world is such a weird narrative to give a kid control over because it's not just that you're reading it like you're actually doing it and especially when you're a little kid like I think I was probably oh god when the Ocarina of Time come out I should know this but I was like seven or eight maybe a little younger actually young and like i think at that at that point i don't know that you distinguish between like the person in the game and yourself in the same way we do as adults like i think literally i would be curious to know like is the part of your brain that does that even fully developed Mm -hmm. because i like literally like i think that experience shaped my view of like myself and of the world like so powerfully in ways that i'm like this is real weird
0: But see, here's how we think because like the second you said that i'm like okay like literally i'm like you're saying that and I, you're okay so lacanian mirror stage would happen around age two because <laughs> i'm yes. like oh no i can figure this out <laughs> and, and, and there's an episode in that so that might be coming okay
3: <laughs> but- I you know, when we when you know you talked about like the continuity of these things and how like like i mean some of us are more years apart from our childhood selves than others but you know like something weird i did when that was I really was, generous like, I, did when I was like a teenager and like In early college, was I when I was like making decisions, I'd be like, would my younger self be disappointed in me if I did this thing? And you know, honestly, like I I definitely like had small rebellions over time. I didn't like just like 100% like reject everything about the church from day one. It was like like, and I won't say like the the negative things, the toxic things. Like it was a struggle to like to you know change my worldview and push back. And I wasn't always as brave as I would want to be. But like, you know, I think now, that if my younger self knew who I was today like I would recognize myself still to some degree and also I think young me would be very relieved I turned out okay and did things I wouldn't have expected and like also I think would be very happy to know I have like friends like I, I found nerds like me like I didn't think like as a kid I would ever be accepted totally for who I am because like I was just weird and like my middle school experience was like reading Agatha Christie by myself during lunch for like a large part of it because I that's not weird
0: oh wait no no, i (laughs) sounds normal to me but okay
3: (laughs) well you know like i didn't have friends though like i had books and books were my friends and now i have real friends and like
1: (laughs) you have us
3: i have and like many others and like yeah that's amazing because like you know at one point and of course my family loved me so i wasn't totally alone though i think it's like hard to see that when you're an angsty little teen but like You know, I remember wishing I just wish I had one person who understood me really and was interested in what I was interested in and who I could be myself with. And now, like, we have this gift of community where we do have this here. And I think that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Aww.
1: And for anyone else like that, they can listen to 200 episodes of Vox Podcast talking about this sort of thing.
2: And, and if you leave, send us a message suggesting an episode, you too can be a guest and be eventually maybe drafted as a host if you manage the <laughs> algorithm that no one's ever written
4: down.
0: You, you can be part of our family. Uh, <laughs> so we've resolved nothing. That <laughs> yeah. kind of sounds
4: like we resolved something. Yeah. Yeah, it
0: took 200 fun.
4: episodes, but we resolved This was something. super cool. I feel
2: like, it also, like, I've known bits and pieces of all of these stories about all of you, but it's cool to have it, like, in a timeline. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like, like, when do you actually explain that to uh, another human? Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean in therapy sessions
5: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean like I, it's weird because and i don't know maybe I, like for like telling my story i'm like like just as as tolly i'm like well, you, you're like you know what's your origin story i'm like i don't think it's healthy like it, every and, and i'm sure you guys probably felt the same way but for me all of you talking i'm like oh that seems so normal mine's horrible but I, but it's from my perspective right yeah. so like i don't know i mean well, I, hannah's right i'm happy to have everyone we said at the very beginning. This is I talk to the four of you more than anyone else who does not live in this house with me. Like I see Stephanie more often than any of you. But it like, would be weird if you talk to us more week. than your
2: wife. That right. would be right. a weird man.
0: Yeah, but that's but between you guys and the two co-hosts of my other show, that's a lot of my socialization in the era of COVID, right? Like that's <laughs> like this is who you're the people I get to talk to. And because of the things that Hannah was saying of the, you know, I'm grateful that I've been able to craft a life for myself where I can just talk to other nerds about random things that I or they find find interesting because it doesn't you know Monica said you know oh how do I know when it's okay to you know propose a show or if it's just too much just for me I'm like if you find it interesting you know where you can you can run an hour long conversation hell yeah we're in I don't need to know anything
2: (laughs) and I'm so baffled by the fact that people listen to us like (laughs) but thank you I'm glad listening to you but it's like. I like because I think to, to Monica's point is it's like it, I think we've gone through so long, it's like the weird things that we're interested in like, is like does anyone else interested in these things? Because sometimes people aren't and that's fine.
0: Yes, I don't know. I am I, I am super thankful to have this and I'm super thankful to have you guys. And Hannah, this was a good show idea. Like you <laughs> yes. know, for two hundred percent. I show, endorse it without guests and without like a you know a pure plan i mean it's i don't know if i i wish someone would comment you know we're running long and after adding this is going to be a long episode so if you're still hanging with us let us know in in the comments like whether you like you know we've been trying recently to every four or five shows just do one of these you know just sort of catch up shows to that aren't explicitly a topic because i do like the five of us getting together and kind of catching up on things that have fallen through the cracks Especially since there are five of us now, it's rare that when there's a topic, we're all on it. Like, that's it, just it, it there wouldn't be any room for the guests. So, we try to take turns. So, it's nice to do this every once in a while. So, thanks. And let us know if it's interesting to anybody else, or should we just do this on our own time? Let, let, like,
1: let us know why we're so fascinating.
2: <laughs> Where do you hate listen? I actually, if, if somebody hate listens to this, I really want to know. And I also want you to come on the podcast to explain why. Oh, yeah. And still leave us the
0: five star review, please. Yeah, yeah,
2: no, do that too.
5: But
0: anyway. Thank you. We have no no guests. So again, thank you to my four lovely co-hosts. I really do love talking to you guys. So thank you. I love you guys. And I appreciate being here. And, you know, let's do it again in 200 more episodes, I guess. Okay.
2: Six years of podcasting. <laughs> I was gonna say, at this point, we've outlasted a lot. Most podcasts do not it, make it, it this it, far.
1: This, what, Most four, podcasts four, don't make it to fifty. Yeah, yeah. What, four, four? years in March,
0: April.
5: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh god. Yeah. yeah so wow. So thank you for listening, especially if you've been listening from the very beginning, but thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you to the four of you for doing this. I guess, I guess I can go around the circle and pretend that any of you are going to plug something like your, or at least remember the names of your damn Twitter and Instagram accounts. So let me see what happens. Let's try this in reverse order of when we signed up for the show. Monica Marvelous.
4: If you haven't watched my video about oops, And bra history.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Do
4: that. It's through BuzzFeed's As Is channel. It's 1920s Big Boobs versus Little. And if you want to talk to me about it, you can do that at Monica Marvelous on Instagram or Twitter.
0: Just yeah, tell her you want to talk about nipples and boobs. Yep, yeah. It's
4: yeah. <laughs> a theme. It's
0: a theme. This is a, that was a callback. Yeah.
4: <laughs> God, it really is all full circle. Yep.
0: <laughs> Palindrome Hannah.
3: You know, if we're going to go full circle... I did, you know, publish one literature thing in 18th century fiction on Jane Austen. So, you know, you can read it. If you don't want to pay for it, you can email me, which that information is on our website. Mm -hmm. And I will send you a copy, but I'll put it in the show notes, or Mav will rather, because who doesn't
2: want to read about Kant and Jane Austen?
3: I told Uh, you, I
0: I was very weird. So yes, I would absolutely read that.
2: (laughs) I was going to say, people listen to us talk about this stuff. So the chances that they want to read about Jane Austen and Kant are... More than zero. Mm-hmm.
3: Which like actually today as we're recording is like the anniversary of the publication of Pride and Prejudice. So like fun times in life.
0: Oh, cool. And Katya.
2: You can technically find me at just that nerdkid on the Instagram and you can technically find me at Katia Garecki on Twitter. Will I ever post on the internet again again? Probably. Someday. <laughs> Not determined. <laughs>
1: <sighs> All right.
0: And Wayne. <laughs>
1: it was on another podcast last week.
0: Oh, All you right. have something to plug. That's right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Our fr- friend of the show, TK, who, who does the There Was an Idea podcast on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I joined her. We did a wrap up of the entire season of Hawkeye. Uh, good conversation. It got a little deeper and, and darker than we had anticipated. It's also a really fun episode, but uh, it, it gets a little heavy at one point, but that, that's it okay. Is. I think we made some points. It so, it was, it, yeah, it we're, it was,
0: I've heard it. I mean, it was as the listeners hear this is, it's been three weeks, but you know, I yeah. heard it when it came out last week and it, yeah, it was good. Good episode. And you got to talk about, well, you talked about all of us, which makes the show great, but you also, you talked about um, your love of the
1: character, which was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it was, it was a good experience. It was a good show. So, so that's the most recent thing. I, You know, I'll I'll save everything else I'm doing for the next episode. And let's
0: see, I mean, you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where you can find out what we're talking about next week and leave us your thoughts so that we can address them when we record the topic. We've got some really interesting stuff coming up in the very near future. We've got stuff on fashion. We've got stuff on romance novels. We've got stuff on comics we've got we got a lot of eclectic interesting stuff the same kinds of things that we've been doing for 200 episodes and some new things so you should absolutely check it out and if you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do then please subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor leave us a five-star review if you leave us a five-star review, especially on itunes apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm makes us more popular helps other people find the show and also i mean it's 200 episodes like like we said said most podcasts don't make it that far that's worth a five-star review that's worth you like writing a review not just giving us five stars but write down and say wow you guys did this for 200 episodes that's impressive and we want to see you do 200 more we'd appreciate that i would like to thank maximilian of thought floor music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out I'd like to thank all of my co-hosts one last time. I'd like to thank you at home for joining us for 200 of these. (laughs) I hope you stick around for 200 more, and we'll see you next time.
1: Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.